Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started. Just make yourselves comfortable. Take your time. Come on in. Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll dive into this lesson. I'm excited to talk to you about this lesson because we are, we're going to talk a lot about a lot of Jewish stuff because we're going to talk about a lot of non-Jewish people. If that doesn't make sense, hopefully it will in a minute. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Grateful that we can come together, brothers and sisters in Christ, to study your word. I pray that little by little, week in and week out, as we spend time in your word, that you will use it to shape us. We thank you for your blessings, pray for our country, and pray, Lord, that you would simply guide us, give us the courage to be faithful in every situation. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you probably know the question number, so if you have questions during class, uh, just shoot those in. We'll try to answer as many questions as we can. We have been moving through the book of Acts, and we are, there's certain movements in the book. We'll be studying this just through this semester because it's the story of the early church, and you've seen it's the story of, of people at this point. We're going to look at certain characters, and that's how the scriptures tend to show us the, all the activity that's going in the church by focusing on certain people. In our last study, we began to see uh, tensions in the early church because of the nature of the gospel and how it starts to spread. If you remember, it starts in Jerusalem, day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. You see the Holy Spirit and miraculous uh, things happening, which made room for the message. You're starting to see miracles in a different light, I hope, that miracles are there to validate a message. Miracles aren't the gospel. Miracles are there to get people to pay attention to the gospel. And so you see the church in Jerusalem, that early church were... Jews who became Christian, but they were a certain kind of Jew. They're Jews who lived in Jerusalem and who spoke Hebrew. Then we saw that you, at the day of Pentecost, you have Greek-speaking Jews who become Christians. And we saw with the story of Stephen and the first deacons how there were a few tensions there. The Hebrew-speaking Jews always had some tensions with the Greek-speaking Jews who didn't live in Jerusalem. They thought they were little second-class Jews. Well, when they become Christians, some of those same prejudices come in there with them. So they work through those in a, in a unique way. Our last lesson, we followed the story of uh, Philip, one of those early deacons. Stephen was killed, and so you see all those believers scatter out of Jerusalem because finally the persecution from the Jewish authorities got to the point where they're going to kill you. Now, Paul is rounding up. Uh, Christians and throwing them in jail for blasphemy and taking their possessions. I mean, it's a very intense persecution, so they scatter. And the scriptures follow Philip. Philip scatters from Jerusalem. He goes north into Samaria. Well, Samaritans are kind of Jews, but not. They're like the, the real uh, cousins that you don't claim. You know, they're, they really weren't well thought of. But he goes up there, and sure enough, they hear the gospel. Well, that caused some discomfort in the early church. He comes back through Jerusalem, goes down to Gaza, and meets the Ethiopian eunuch who is, who is a believer in God, but he's not fully a Jew. And so you begin to see the gospel spread out. And not only is it Hebrew-speaking Jews who become Christians, or even Greek-speaking Jews, but now it's not even people who were Jewish. So Philip goes on to Caesarea, city on the coast, and that's where he uh, stays. You'll meet him again in Acts chapter 21. His kids are somewhat famous. But he starts in Caesarea and begins to preach there. At the same time, we saw Saul, the apostle Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is a Roman name. And you're going to know him mostly as Paul once we get outside Jerusalem. Well, the apostle Paul is on his way to Damascus in Syria, a city then, a city now, to go persecute the Christians up there because they've heard that there are some Jews who've come to this new faith there. On the way, he has an encounter with Jesus and he's never the same. So he becomes a Christian on the way. Goes into Damascus, blind, and then his blindness is cured. He's baptized, he becomes a believer. What we don't know from Acts, but he goes out into the Arabian desert for a while, comes back to Damascus, and there the Jewish authorities decide, hey, you can't change stripes, and they, be, they want to kill him. So they literally sneak him out of the city, send him back to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem, and the Christians don't trust him because they remember this is the guy that was 
dragging off Christians and putting them in jail. And the Jews say, wait a minute, you've changed stripes. I think we'll kill you. So they ship him off to this city on the coast, Caesarea. And then from there, they send him back north to his home city of Tarsus, is in modern-day Turkey. That city, Caesarea, on the coast, is going to be the setting for the next chapter in Acts. The city of Caesarea in that time was not a Jewish city. Herod the Great, you remember him from the time of Jesus' birth and before, he built that city from nothing. He built a seaport there. It was called Caesarea on the sea, and it, he built it out of nothing because he needed an import-export harbor. Herod was a shrewd businessman. And so he needed an export-import place, and he built a Greek-Roman-looking city there. It didn't look anything like a Jewish city. It looked like a modern Greek and Roman city. He had a theater, an amphitheater. Theater is the one-sided. Amphitheater is both-sided. When you go to a football game, you're basically sitting in an amphitheater. It's on both sides. He had a hippodrome. Think chariot races. He had an interesting palace, by the way. I thought you'd enjoy seeing this. This is the view at Caesarea, looking over the ruins of Herod's palace out into the Mediterranean Sea. He, had, he built a magnificent modern city at that time. And he populated it with all this trade. It was very uh, pagan city. I mean, it was Greek temples, temple to Caesar. He named the city after Caesar to curry favor with him. You had a lot of Romans, you had a lot of Phoenicians. You just didn't, there's some Jews there, but it's not a Jewish city at all. One of the neatest things, uh, by the way, about this is you don't tend to think of luxury, but this is Herod's palace looking out into the Mediterranean, a part of it. And that little body of water you can see there was a freshwater pool that literally blended into the Mediterranean Sea. We kind of think of that as a modern thing. Well, 2,000 years ago, Herod had his engineers build him a swimming pool that just literally went right out into the, into the Mediterranean Sea. Even the ruins are lavish. Well, that's what this city was. It was a city that was uh, very much uh, Roman and Greek city. So it wasn't, didn't feel very Jewish. And that's going to be the setting for the next story. There's one other city right along the coast. You can see it, uh, I believe, on this map. Just south of Caesarea is the city of Joppa. And think of that as modern Tel Aviv. And so you see uh, Joppa down south there. That's where our story is going to be in these two cities. Joppa is a very Jewish city. Caesarea is not. And you're going to see, this is so brilliant, the way the book of Acts does. You've got the geography and the lesson going together. So Caesarea, pagan city, Joppa, very Jewish city, and what this story is going to do, it's going to geographically bring those two together because spiritually it's going to bring those two worlds together. The Jewish Christians and the Gentiles who were way outside the pale. So the geography is going to come together and so is it spiritually. So watch how brilliantly the book of Acts does this. So Acts chapter 10 opens in the city of Caesarea. It says this, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius. That's a Roman name. He was a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He was in the Roman army. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. Marty mentioned in the sermon this week that there are three essential elements of Jewish piety. In other words, there are three big things you did to be a pious or devout Jew, and that was prayer, giving, and fasting. And that's why that section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about praying, giving, and fasting. This guy was doing two of those things. He's trying to be devout. He believes in God, so he's a God-fearing man. One day, about three in the afternoon, which is one of the three Jewish times of prayer in the day, he had a vision. He saw an angel who came to him and said, Cornelius, and he said, what is it, Lord? And the angel said, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. I want you to send some men down to Joppa. I want you to bring back a man named Simon there, that's Simon's real name. Peter is his nickname, who, who is also called Peter. He's staying with another guy named Simon, who's a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and one of his soldiers 
uh, who was one of his attendants, he told him what happened, and he sent them down to Joppa to do what the angel said. Go find this man named Peter and ask him if he will come back here. Well, let's talk for just a second about Cornelius and who he was. Uh, he is, uh, this Caesarea, by the way, was the Roman provincial headquarters. The Roman governor, remember Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem and Jesus is brought before him and he says, yes, you can crucify him. That's not where Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, lived. He was only there because he had to be there for the Passover. I mean, it was the time when he showed his face and he wanted to keep the peace. He lived in Caesarea, in this palace. Herod used to have the palace. When he died, the Romans took it over and said, it'll now be our palace. That's where the Roman governor lived. So he's from Caesarea. That's where the army predominantly was headquartered as well. So this was sort of the Roman provincial head of this whole province of Judea. He is a centurion. A centurion, you probably know, the name means 100. It's because he was over 100 soldiers. And the way the Roman army worked, if it was a position of authority, it was sort of the backbone of the Roman army, sort of like sergeants are in the U.S. Army. I mean, that, those NCOs are the backbone of the army. That's what centurions were. Had a lot of authority, had a lot of autonomy. There would be six centurions, so 600 soldiers made up a cohort, and 10 of those cohorts, 6,000, made up a legion. So significant post. You see centurions occasionally in the Gospels. In Luke 17, Jesus meets a centurion who's stationed in uh, Judea, who's also God-fearing, and he commends him for how much faith that he has. Well, Cornelius is one of those guys. He grew up a Roman, likely, but he came here and he was introduced to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he came to believe that all those gods of the Romans weren't real, that this is the real God. He's not really a Jew in the sense that he doesn't follow all of the 613 commandments in the law. He may not have been circumcised, but this phrase... God-fearing. You will see it throughout the book of Acts. It's a technical term that means he's not exactly Jewish, but he believes in God. He comes to our synagogue, and he does some of the things that Jews do, like giving to the poor and praying. And so he's very sympathetic and trying to be devout without actually being a Jew. So he's a Gentile, but he's God-fearing, meaning he does believe in God. So that's the story about him and about that class of people. You'll, you'll meet them again, God-fearing people. The Apostle Paul is going to, you're going to see those people in every city he goes to. You'll see Jews in the synagogue. You'll see some God-fearing Gentiles. And then you'll just see people who don't believe in this God. So that's who he was. It goes on and it says this. Now we're going to skip from Caesarea down to Joppa where Peter is. About noon the following day, as these people he sent are on their journey, by the way, these two cities are about 31 miles apart, and you can tell from the text, it takes them a day and a half to walk that far. So they're on their way, a day and a half later, they're almost there, and Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So he also is going to see a vision. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth, and on it were all kinds of animals, uh, reptiles, birds, everything. And a voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. You're hungry? Kill one of these animals and eat. And Peter said, surely not. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then the sheet was taken back to heaven, and he, he awakens from the trance. So let's talk about that for a minute. What's happening here? The, uh, this vision is basically one that brings clean and unclean animals. In the law of Moses, there are uh, food rules called food that's kosher, food that's not kosher. Basically, it's certain rules. There were animals that Jews could eat and animals that they could not. There were certain ways you had to prepare the food. You couldn't mix certain foods. In other words, there's this whole series of dietary laws but in this case, he's just saying to him, kill one of these animals and eat. And he said, some of those animals are not allowed by the law of Moses. I've never eaten any of those. That would be impure. It would be defiling me. You need to talk about this a little bit because this is foreign to us. So I want to ask two questions. What are these rules and why is this such a big deal? Why is God using this, you'll see, to make his point to Peter? 
And then secondly, why don't we observe the dietary rules today? But first, what's going on here? The Old Testament has certain moral laws and certain ceremonial laws. I mean, I'm simplifying this, but fundamentally you have certain rituals and you have certain moral laws. For example, you have uh, a moral law, thou shalt not kill, and then you have a dietary law, don't eat any pulled pork sandwiches when you go to Earl's. And so you've got two different kinds of rules, right? The Old Testament doesn't really distinguish between those. I mean, it's not like, okay, here's a list of this kind of rule and a list of that kind of rule. It's all mingled together as these are the things you need to do to follow the law of Moses to be God's set-apart people. And so these dietary rules came to operate on the same level as a moral rule. They didn't see they're all commandments of God. And some of the customs that arose around those rules kind of elevated themselves up to the level of a, a moral law. In other words, these were very, taken very seriously for two reasons. One, because they're in the law of Moses, and two, it sets them apart from the rest of the world. And in fact, you can make the argument that that's why God gave them those rules. Some people say he told them these things because it's healthier to not eat this. I don't, the rabbis never thought that that was the issue. They really never thought it was about God wanting you to have a good diet. They really thought it was more about God wanting you to look different than the rest of the world. And Jews definitely looked different. Pork was the cheapest and one of the easiest things to eat, and they didn't eat it. It set them apart immediately. And so all these dietary rules set them apart. In the setting them apart, they felt like it kept us cleaner, purer, more virtuous than all those Gentiles who didn't follow any of these rules. Does that make sense? That's why this is such a big deal to them. The Jews saw this as a symbol, a sign of covenant faithfulness with God. You're saying, really, what they ate? That set of ceremonial rules so obviously set them apart. I mean, even some of the Gentiles said, no, you're not supposed to kill. They shared some of the same moral laws. They didn't share any of these dietary laws. So it made it clear that they were set apart. So their set apartness from the non-Jews, all those Gentiles out there. The food laws were, were some of the most visible things they did. So it became a big deal in the mind of the Jews. So when Peter sees this command to go kill and eat something, it's not just like, hey, let's sneak in a pork sandwich here, nobody's going to know. Uh-uh. This is like, wait, you're asking me to even kind of be non-Jewish. You're asking me to be common like all those unwashed Gentiles out there. It was a big deal to them. Now here's an interesting question, it's kind of a sideline, but why don't we keep all the rules of the law of Moses? Well, the easy answer, as you think about it, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I did come to fulfill the law. There are tons of those commandments that we don't follow as Christians. We've been freed from the law. As the scripture says, the law couldn't ever make anyone righteous, but it did a good job of showing us how much we needed Jesus Christ, didn't it? And so we have Christ, and so now, in a sense, everything is permissible for us. We don't follow those laws anymore. So we're really not under the law of Moses. We don't keep the Passover. We're not obligated to keep the dietary rules. We don't sacrifice at a temple. There is no temple right now, but if there were, we wouldn't be sacrificing animals. We have that perfect sacrifice in Jesus. But we do keep the moral rules. And that is because in the New Testament, what you see Jesus doing is basically doing away with the ceremonial and ritual parts of the Old Testament because he has fulfilled them. He is the perfect sacrifice, but not the moral requirements. In fact, Jesus takes the moral requirements from the behavioral realm, thou shalt not kill, to the heart realm, which is don't even harbor hatred in your heart. That's that, some of those famous passages in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said you shouldn't do this, but I say to you, you shouldn't do that. You've heard it was said not to commit adultery, but I'll tell you what, let's just go to the heart and let's try to move lust. We're going to take lust out of our lives. Does that make sense? The New Testament actually takes those farther. But for Jews of that time, they don't see that distinction and that's why this is so difficult for Peter and why this is uh, such a you know, really in-your-face kind of thing to do. He is shocked at this. 
Another good way to think about this is because some people say, well, wait a minute, you keep some of the rules in the Old Testament, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, etc., but you don't keep all of them. Isn't that inconsistent? Here's a great way to think about that. If uh, you have a child on the other side of the street and they're running toward you and they're going to cross the street to you and there's oncoming traffic, you might yell, stop, stay right where you are. And the child stops and then the traffic goes by and you look and it's safe and you say, cross the street. Well, is that a contradiction? You said stop, but now you said cross the street. Well, no, because the stop was right in its time and the cross the street was right in its time. And that's, a, I think, a helpful metaphor, a great way to think about what God did with the Old Testament. Was it wrong? No, it was exactly right for its time. It did exactly what God wanted it to do. So the fact that Peter's here saying, whoa, God, I'm not supposed to eat that. That would make me unclean. He's not doing anything wrong. He's following the commands that up until that time have been the right time. What God is going to do here is he's going to begin to slowly help the whole church understand that the gospel is moving beyond that. In the moral realm, it's getting even, I guess you would call it this way, much more strict. It's not just do the right thing, it's transform our hearts. In the ceremonial realm, it's rely on Jesus, not on food. It's going to redefine the idea of holiness. Jews thought they were holy, set apart, which means to be set apart, special. They thought they were holy because they were doing the things God told them to do and that made them different. The gospel is going to redefine holiness from some ritual and turn it into a heart issue, the presence of the Holy Spirit, that trust and commitment to Jesus Christ. That's what sets us apart, not observing food rules. This is what's happening here. Again, you're going to see Caesarea and Joppa come together, the Gentile world and the Hebrew world, and you're going to see God take the gospel and meld the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians together. And don't expect it to be easy. So that's what's happening here with him. Now, the three times, we've done enough in here symbolically. Think about our Revelation study. The number three is very symbolic. It's the divine number. And so most uh, commentators, and I agree, understand that this happened three times to say this is emphasis. This is God saying, listen to what I'm telling you. This is God's will overriding human preference. And so the three is significant. And he kind of, God's making his point to Peter. So Peter gets up and he's thinking to himself, okay, this is different. I mean, I don't really know what to make of this. It said he got up and he began to uh, think about what was happening. And while he's up there thinking about it, the guys from Caesarea show up and they knock on the door and they say, okay, this is going to sound crazy, but I'm looking for a guy named Peter. So they get Peter, he comes down, he says, I don't know you guys, but why in the world are you here? And they said, you are not going to believe this, but... Cornelius uh, saw a vision, and he said, we're supposed to come and talk to you. And Peter says, strange, because I just saw a vision too, and this is starting to click together. So he brings them into the house, and keeps them, you know, they stay there together and talk, and he decides to go back. But I want you to notice another brilliant little movement here in Acts. You're going to see Peter go from his Jewishness, and he's going to start to move in events towards this more gospel understanding. I didn't tell you this, but he's staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. A tanner dealt with hides, dead animals. He's ritually unclean. Doesn't make him a bad person, just means you can't go to the temple and do things. Well, that's fine. They're in Joppa. They're not close to the temple anyway. Peter wouldn't normally stay at the house of a Jew who dealt with dead animals, but he is. Now you get these Gentiles come. I mean, they're not Jewish at all. He lets them into his house and actually hosts them in his house. A Jew wouldn't normally do that either. And in a few minutes, you're going to see him actually go into a Gentile's house and eat a meal with a Gentile. So you see this progression of the geography and then Peter just step by step moving out of his comfort zone and beginning to dawn on him that the gospel's different. God's doing something unusual here. So he speaks to them and he says, you know what? I'll go. And so he goes. Next day, Peter started out with them, headed back to Caesarea, and some of the brothers, meaning Christians from Joppa, went along with him. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them. And uh, he called together all his relatives, all of his friends, and Peter entered the house. Cornelius met him and fell at his feet. But Peter said, stand up. I'm just a man. Don't worship me. And talking with him, Peter went inside. That's a big deal. Found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. I want to talk about that in a second. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Peter still has no idea. What is this all about? So Cornelius said, well, I had a vision, and I was just told to get you. And so basically I sent for you, and I appreciate you coming. Now, here we all are to listen to whatever the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Here's two people that have no idea what's going on except God has brought them together. Well, let me pause and, and look at this because you, you really have to get a feeling of how much Jews hated Gentiles. And they didn't just hate them in a way that I don't like you, you don't root for my team, you know, we have a rivalry. They hated them with a long, long history of hating. And they not only hated them, and I'll tell you why in a second, they also just thought they were second-rate people. They just were second-rate people. In fact, it's still Jewish doctrine today, Orthodox Jewish doctrine, that Jewish souls are not like Gentile souls. There's a qualitative difference between Jews and Gentiles. So they, there's real animosity, and I want you to understand why. What Peter's saying is not technically true. You're well aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. It's not actually in the law of Moses, but it was indeed a rabbinic decree. In other words, making sure we don't do anything that defiles us. You don't even go in a Gentile's house. You don't visit them. You certainly don't eat with them. I mean, anything they've touched is just stay away from that stuff. And in fact, stay away from them in general because they're pretty much bad. Let me give you some things that will kind of hopefully drive this home. This is a Jewish prayer book. It's called a sitter. Any of you grow up in, uh, I guess, Episcopalian church or something where you had a prayer book, Book of Common Prayer? You open it up and you... And what it had in it was it had prayers during the year. It had certain readings during the year. It was sort of the, the handbook of worship. That's what this is for Jews. This is a modern Jewish prayer book. All kinds of interesting stuff in here. But I want to share with you one thing. This is, this is used by Orthodox Jews today. But it very much reflects still the views of that time. There are certain prayers that are said in the morning. And so these are prayers that, now I'm talking about Orthodox Jews, not, not all the Jews that you know would do this, but this is an Orthodox Jewish prayer book. You get up and you would say these prayers every morning. It's called the blessings. The, they say, blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who opens our eyes of the blind. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who gives strength to the weary. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who provides for our every needs. Now listen to this. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, because you have not made me a Gentile. <laughs> That's the prayer. Goes on and says, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, because you did not make me a slave. And then just in full disclosure, the men then say, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, because you have not made me a woman. <laughs> I, this is true. I'm not making this up. But my point to you is, I want you to start to get a feeling for how Peter feels about this. This is so wrong to him to even be here with this guy. And even today, this idea that there is a difference between Jews and Gentiles and that there's impure and there's pure, there's set-apartness, that's what's being challenged here. There's also history here. So I'll take you back just a little bit before this time in history. So think of the Jews of Jesus' time. 167 years before, the Greeks, before the Romans ruled, rolled in, there were Greeks who ruled Judea. This is the time of the Maccabees, called the Hasmonean era, but at the time of the Maccabees. So all you Catholics are, yeah, I recognize that. read that in my Catholic Bible. It's a book of history about that era. The Greeks of that time decided they were going to stamp out the Jewish religion. It is brutal. It was against the law to own an Old Testament, punishable by death. It was against the law to circumcise your children, punishable by death. The stories in the book of Maccabees about that era, the torture, just unbelievably brutal treatment of the Jews. 
They were either going to stamp out the religion or they were going to kill every one of the Jews. Well, the Jews rise up and uh, there's a war and they kind of throw off the rule of the Greeks and they go into a little mini golden age. But my point is that these pagans to the Jews are the ones who had been trying to kill them. Well, that sounds kind of calm, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. That story could be said today, couldn't it? There are people who want to eliminate the nation of Israel, want to kill every Jew. You'll see that rhetoric in the Middle East. Well, that is what the Gentiles had literally tried to do. So not only is there this religious idea of we're God's people, you're not. Our souls are even different than yours. We're pure, you're not. We have nothing to do with you. There's also this hatred of you tried to kill us. You tortured our people, you killed our children. I mean, there is more bad blood here than you can imagine. So I want you to understand what's happening to Peter is just rocking his world. This is really life-changing. So, then Peter began to speak, and I've excerpted this. He has a little sermon here in the middle, but I'll just give you the short version. Then Peter began to speak. He said, now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts men from every nation. That word nation, by the way, uh, is the Greek word for that is where we get our word uh, ethnic or ethnicity. And so nations are ethnic people. That's the word for Gentiles. In other words, Jews go, if you're not a Jew, you're just one of those ethnic people. You know, you're one of those far off. They're, they had a lot of metaphors for Gentiles. One is the ethnic people. They're not real Jews. The other is people who are far off, meaning God doesn't even know where you live. You know, you're just so unapproved of. So they said that he accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So Peter's getting, this is, this is an epiphany for Peter. He's like, my whole world is being rocked here. And he goes in and he begins to speak to them about Jesus Christ and what he did and how he's starting to see that what Jesus did really opened this up. It's not dawned on them yet, but they're starting to get an inkling. Remember, way back in history, Abraham, 2,000 years before this, God made some promises to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want you to be faithful to me, and I'm going to give you a land, the land of Israel. It's where they are. I'm going to make you into a great nation, the Jewish people, which they are, and you will be a blessing to all nations of the earth. And that's always thought of as a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. Through Jesus, God's actually not just going to bless the Jews. He's going to bless everyone. This is starting to realize, wait a minute, this gospel, this Jesus is doing some radical things. That's what he meant. Even the Gentiles have the opportunity. If they fear God and they do what is right, they have the opportunity to repent. Well, while he was speaking... The Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. This is all these Gentiles out there. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, speaking in tongues is interesting. What happened to the apostles on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on them? Do a lot of miraculous things, but they began to speak in other languages. And everybody goes, that's a miracle. Same thing happening with these Gentiles. What does that say to them? It's like, wait a minute. It's not just the apostles. It's not just the Jews. The Holy Spirit is doing the exact same thing with people that we thought were unclean, that that could never happen to. So Peter said, can anybody keep these people from being baptized with water? I mean, hey, they've got the Holy Spirit. It's pretty clear. God says they're okay. They have received the Holy Spirit just like we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Fascinating story. I mean, this is the beginning of the story. It's not like a switch went on in Peter's head, and he never had any doubts again, but this is a cataclysmic event. This is God saying, I need, to, I need you to understand what's really happening here. And so this is kind of the story of that next step in the early church. All right, let me pause there for a minute because it sounds like a great story at this point. It's like, wow, look what God is doing. He is teaching Peter and the Jews that no, the gospel transcends all nations. Everything is good. They're all going to hold hands, drink a Coke, and sing Kumbaya together at this point. Not exactly, but before we get to that, let's see if we have some questions. 
Can you tell us the name again of the Jewish book that you read from and maybe spell it for us? Yes, I'll tell you the name and spell it. Now, I don't want you worshiping with this, all right? I want you to understand. Don't go saying, Terry said we don't have to read our Bible, we can do the Jewish prayer book. No. This is called a Siddur, S-I-D-D-U-R. It's a Jewish book of prayer. There are uh, different editions that are approved by different Orthodox sects, but it's a Siddur. It's a Jewish prayer book. Do we know if Jesus followed all of the Mosaic laws during his lifetime? Is that why he was able to fulfill them and become the spotless lamb? Yes, and I'm glad you asked that because I want to add one thing to it. Did Jesus follow the law of Moses? Yes, perfectly, without blemish. He is the lamb without blemish. In other words, you think of all the Jews who were trying to follow the law to be righteous. None could, and that was the point of the law, is to teach us. It did several things. Actually, it elevated them to teach the whole world. These are God's chosen people. But it even told God's chosen people that you can never be good enough on our own. And so here comes Jesus, who does indeed keep the law perfectly without sin. He becomes the perfect sacrifice to end all those imperfect sacrifices. So that's true. But let me add one thing that I forgot to tell you. And this is going to be interesting as you go through Acts. Most Jews who became Christians kept doing all of the Old Testament stuff. I mean, they didn't necessarily do sacrifice. They understood that sacrifices, we have the perfect sacrifice. They kept the dietary rules. That's why you say, well, Peter, he's a Christian like us. He can eat pork if he wants to. Not really. I mean, they were Jewish. They became Christians. They kept living that way. They kept the dietary rules. So that's important to understand because some of those Greek-speaking Jews, eh, they were a little loose on some of the rules. And the Gentiles, they're not even in the ballpark on this thing. So you see how wide, but those Jewish Christians still followed a lot of the rules and still felt like it makes us separated. That's a good, that's a good question, because that's going to become significant in just a minute. Okay, back to Paul and his name change from Saul. Did he change his name because of his reputation? Maybe so that people wouldn't be afraid of him when he came to speak to them? It doesn't appear. Question is, did Saul change his name to Paul? He actually just had two names. I mean, in the Roman world, he's known as Paulus. And in the Hebrew world, he was born Saul, named after the first king, right? Good little Jewish name, good little Jewish boy. He actually goes by Saul. He just starts, it appears, he starts using the other name as he gets out into the Roman world because you see a guy and he's got a Roman name and you go, wait, now not everybody's got a Roman name. And this is not just your typical Jewish guy here. It was very useful. So it doesn't appear he changed it because he was hiding anything. He actually used that asset that God had given him because it furthered his ministry. Okay, is that the same reason that Peter had three names? Good question. No, Peter has three names uh, because Peter's just, Peter's got a nickname. So Peter's name is Simon, son of Jonah. Jonah was his dad's name. So Simon Bar-Jonah, his name is Simon. Hebrew, that's Shimon. So that's what he was born. Well, pretty soon they realized he was just a rambunctious little toddler. He's always knocking stuff over. And so they give him a nickname. And the nickname is Cephas, C-E-P-H-A-S. You'll see him called Cephas. That's a Hebrew word that means unruly toddler. Now, actually, it means rock, okay? So they, that's his nickname. Well, that Hebrew word in Greek, the same meaning is Petra, Petros, Peter, which means rock in Greek. So they just took his Hebrew nickname, and they just made it into a Greek nickname. So that's why he has a real name, Simon, and then he's got a nickname in Hebrew, and the same nickname, just it's just in Greek. Does that make sense? So depending, you'll hear him called Cephas and Peter. That's Rocky, just in two different languages. Good question. Well, Rocky is just done really well to this point. I mean, he's like, wow, look what God is doing. He just blew my mind, but I'm going to be faithful. The Holy Spirit came on them, and here are these miraculous gifts. Once again, not all Christians spoke in tongues, apparently. It did not appear to be normative. Not all Christians uh, had, it appears, what we call charismatic gifts or sign gifts. All Christians have the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, 
but not necessarily these miraculous gifts that we like to call them. Why do you think that happened here that they did? Making a point, wasn't it? And that's something I want you to keep in mind when you think about charismatic or miraculous gifts. They're always at God's control. Notice Peter's like, whoa, Holy Spirit, where'd that come from? You know, I didn't text you and tell you it's time to come. You know, here's the Holy Spirit because God said it's time to come and God decided they were going to speak in tongues. So I want you to see that all these charismatic gifts are under God's control, not ours, not the people's. So the Holy Spirit comes down on all of them. So Peter goes, wow, this is great. Meanwhile, the church in Jerusalem hears there's some funny stuff going on out there that the gospel has apparently come to Gentiles. So the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea, back in the Jerusalem area, heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, let me tell you who this is now, they're circumcised, meaning they were Jews, but they're now believers in Jesus Christ, so they're Christians, but they're Jewish Christians. They're still following the dietary laws, all that. They're still kind of got that whole exclusive mindset, and I can't fault them for that. I mean, that's just where they came from. So did Peter before he saw this. They call him up, and watch this. This is hilarious. So the circumcised believers criticized him, and they said, how dare you baptize these Gentiles? They don't. They're not upset about them being baptized. Look at what they're upset about. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. That is fascinating. The big deal there is having this table fellowship, eating a meal with them. It's like, okay, baptize them if you must, but do not eat with them. <laughs> I mean, that's, I want you to understand how big a deal this is because when you get into the letters of Paul later, as he's dealing with churches out in the Greek and Roman world that's got some Jews, but it's also got Gentiles, this whole what you eat and what you don't and eating together, big deal. It's a big adjustment for people. We have our adjustments that we have too. I mean, one of the great discussion questions I put on your handout is to think through who are the Gentiles for us? Who are the people that, okay, they could be Christians, but don't make me eat with them. You know, don't make them come to my house. Seriously. I, I want to argue that people still struggle. The gospel's still challenging us in this way. So anyway, so they criticize him and say, how dare you eat with circumcised men? And I hate to tell you this, but poor old Peter is a uh, little rambunctious Peter. He has a hard time with this. Paul is going to write about him. I mean, he's struggling with this, and I want you to be sympathetic to Peter about this. But in Galatians, now this is a letter that Paul's writing to people way up in Turkey. And he's telling him this story. He said, now, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, that's up in Syria, he said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Because when he was in Antioch, before certain people came from Jerusalem, some of these circumcised Christians, he was eating with the Gentiles. Well, of course he was. God had told him, you can eat with Cornelius. I've made everything clean through the gospel. I've made everybody have the opportunity to be holy. They're not holy just because of who they are, but everyone has the opportunity to repent and believe the good news and become a follower of Christ. So he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and he wouldn't eat because he was afraid of that criticism from the circumcision party, meaning Jewish Christians who said, wait a minute, they can be Christians, but we aren't eating with these people because they're still not as good as we are. And he became... Um, he kind of bowed to that peer pressure. He said the rest of the Jews acted like hypocrites along with him. Even Barnabas was led astray and quit eating with the Gentiles. But me, Paul, not me, bud. Give me a beer and a pulled pork sandwich. It's okay. But when I saw, okay, strike that. I don't want any emails about that. Okay. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, and that's true because that's what God just got through showing Peter. He said, I said to Cephas before everybody, in front of everybody else, good old Paul, he's rambunctious too, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, how can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? That's, that's not right. They need to repent, believe the good news, and obey Jesus Christ. They don't necessarily need to be circumcised and follow the dietary rules. But I want you to understand that it sounds like from this story, oh, Peter's got it all right. He doesn't. There's tension in the church over this issue. There was tension about the 
Hebrew Jews and the Greek Jews becoming Christians, big tension over the Gentiles becoming Christians. And that's where, as we come to Christ, he renews our heart. It takes a little time to renew our mind. We have to let go of old prejudices. We have to be true to the gospel. And you're going to see that struggle in the early church. So they began to criticize him, and he says, okay, i got to explain this to you before you be too hard on me, and watch him wimp out here a little bit. So he said, now, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit, he talks to him, and then he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them just like he had on us. They start to speak in tongues. I mean, God did that, not me. He says, then I remembered what the Lord said. He says, now, hey, whoa, now, wait a minute. Jesus told us that John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said, so if God gave them the same Holy Spirit he gave us, miraculously, obviously, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? There's that firm Peter. He's like, whoa, not me. I wasn't going to do it. I don't like him. But God said we got to do it, right? The point is, of this story, is God's putting his imprint on it to teach his people. So you can see the uncertainty and the tension here. When they heard this, this is so Jewish, when they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, So, okay, you got to hear this the way they said it. I know this is the way they said it. So, God is going to let even the Gentiles in. I mean, they're not happy about this, okay? But they're like, can't argue with it. God is going to let even the Gentiles in. And so you begin to see the truth of the gospel have huge implications and big impact. It doesn't just impact our spiritual life. Meaning, okay, I believe the good news, I trust Jesus Christ, I am saved, to use our, our term for that. It's not just getting us into heaven. The gospel will not stop until it transforms all of our lives. Does that make sense? One of the things, one of the really bad teaching that comes out of this event, remember when Peter said, wow, I have learned that God will accept anyone. Some people understand that and say, see, God accepts anyone and everything. No, God doesn't accept anything. God is willing to take people where they are if they will repent and believe the good news. And then he begins the total makeover. This is a total makeover. The Jews thought, well, we were Jews. Now we're Christians. We're good. If anybody needs some work, it's those Gentiles. They got to quit eating the stuff they eat. And do you see how they dress? Oh, my goodness. You know, that those people have a lot of work to do. God actually starts doing his work on the Jews. And he says, okay, now that you trust me, my Holy Spirit's going to begin to transform all your prejudices because they've got to go. It's going to transform your understanding of the difference between the moral truths and the things you thought made you holy. Now my spirit makes you holy. And he's going to begin to transform all their lives. And I think there's a powerful lesson there. And I, this is a great insight for us because you may look at yourself both ways here. Sometimes we look at ourselves and say, we know the truth, we're good, all those heathens out there, they're bad, right? And God wants to work on that attitude. That's true. People who don't know Christ are doomed. That's the message of the gospel. But God desperately wants them to come to Christ. And so our attitude is not, oh, you guys are doomed, but we're not. Have a nice life, you know? Our thing is the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all the world. He wants to work on that attitude. But on the flip side, I want you to understand this attitude of I'll never be good enough. This is something that a lot of us struggle with is I'm never going to measure up. I'm never going to be good enough. I try and I try, but I always fail and I fail. In other words, that attitude is also going to get a total makeover. We're going to get off that little hamster wheel of workspace salvation or did I do good today? Well, then I must be a good Christian. Did I fail in some things today? Well, I must be a bad Christian. It's going to transform that thinking too. It's going to take us out of the thinking that my holiness, my acceptability to God is tied up in just how good did I do today? It's really not. He's going to redefine holiness as my trust in Jesus Christ. And his spirit's going to overturn not just our behavior, but our attitudes as well. Sometimes we think of Christianity as a transaction. Okay, God, I'll give you some faith and you give me heaven. I'll be baptized, I'll go to church, an average of 2.4 times a month, that is the national average, amongst Christians. The Gentiles don't come at all. But amongst Christians, 2.4 times a month, and when I die, you take me to heaven, right? 
That's sometimes we think of it as a transaction. What you see happening here is you take the holiest people in the world, observant Jews. They're the closest people to God. That's true. Pharisees were the closest people to God in terms of behavior and being obedient. And he says, and I'm going to give you a makeover as well. So our relationship with Jesus Christ is not a transaction. It's a total surrender. In other words, we say a lot of times, God didn't, Jesus Christ didn't come to make us better people. He came to make us brand new people. That's why you'll see all the language of Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You get, the old person has to go away. We're going to start new. You're going to see Paul in Romans talking about my old self died on the cross. I'm raised to walk in newness of life. So I want you to be really excited about that. I want you to be excited like you are when you watch all those home makeover shows. You know, this is the before. <laughs> Who could live there? This is the after. Oh, my gosh, you did that on a budget. By the way, I don't actually believe they do that on the budget, they say. But whatever. Look bad before, look good. That's you. That's me. That's what the Spirit is doing with us. I want you to be as excited about what God is doing in you as you are when you watch those shows and like, man, that is just awesome. Look at that. That's a gorgeous house. That's you. That's what the Spirit is doing in us. Here you see it beginning to happen, and it's kind of tough. It's changing a lot of attitudes, and you and I feel that way. Like, okay, this is kind of tough. God's kind of chipping away at some things that hurt a little bit. Whoa, wait, wait, God, don't take that away. Or wait, don't pour that in. I don't know that I want to be gracious to everybody out there. But you begin to see how, how it's a little bit of a difficult process, but God's literally, literally remodeling us. That is exciting. That's the Christian adventure. I love this chapter because it gives us an insight into what is our faith walk. It's a total makeover by the Spirit, and you're going to end up looking better than any mansion on any one of those shows. So your assignment this week is I want you to be in a great mood. I want you to be excited about what the Spirit's doing in your life. I don't want any more of this Sam's card Christians. Okay, nothing against Sam's. But my point is, you got a Sam's card, you get in, you get some benefits. Don't be a Sam's card Christian like, hey, I'm a Christian, walk the aisle, prayed the prayer, whatever it is we did, so I'm in. What does it mean to you? Not much, but it'll get me into heaven. That's not what Christianity is about. And you begin to see here that hard, beautiful work of the Spirit changing us around. Does that make sense? So I want to see a smile on your face if I see you this week going, you will not believe what God is doing in me. You will not believe how the Spirit is shaping me into a total mansion, a total masterpiece. That's what this story is about. Now, one last thing. Next week, one of these handsome men will be teaching this class while I'm gone. We are going to continue with Acts. And actually, this is interesting, but the next chapter is even more interesting, and you'll hear Cole talk to you about the next chapter of Acts. So I not only want you to come, now that you are a masterpiece, I want you to go find somebody who's a shack, bring them, God will make them a masterpiece too, all right? Next week. Thank you, guys.